Hello everyone, this is Sake. Welcome once again to Cricket with an Accent and Paul Dennett, uh, cricket commentator and podcaster, makes his way back after a while. And uh, what better time than to be talking in the second or third week of the World Cup. Hey Paul, welcome to the show. Hey Sake, how are you going? Yeah, it's kind of a, a great time. I mean, we are all in different time zones trying to uh, catch as much cricket. Uh, the tournament has delivered few good games, but so far rain and one-sided games have been uh, the theme. But before we get into the World Cup, let's have a quick uh, tribute to Yuvraj Singh. I mean, he announced time on his career, which was kind of accepted because he was not in the mix of uh, the Indian playing 11. Uh, also was a non-factor in his uh, IPL uh, this year. So, what do you make of his career and uh, what's your recollection? Uh, how do you summarize it? Well, probably the strange thing about Yuvraj is that he probably is an example of how different cricket is perceived in India and the rest of the world. That I think that the outpouring of emotion since his retirement uh, from, from India has been significant and the fact that the International Cricket Council on Twitter changed their uh, profile or their their background pic to a, a picture of Yuvraj celebrating uh, speaks volumes. Uh, but I've got to be honest, in Australia, his retirement didn't even make the news. Um, most Australians would be unaware that of his existence, to be quite frank. Um, so there's a huge disparate, dis gap between, between the two. I know that me as a cricket fan, I'm aware of him beating cancer. I'm aware of him hitting six sixes in an over. Um, being successful in um, the 2011 World Cup for India. I believe he probably played a part in one of those um, little funny tournaments that these days are being called World Cups as well, the World T20 that began as a kind of a, almost as a joke, but seems to be very, very popular <laughs> everywhere except Australia, maybe because we've never won it. So, uh, look, um, he's obviously a very good player, but um, he's one of these that is massively huge in India. Maybe not his popularity in the rest of the world is not, not quite so strong. Uh, let's get back on that, but I mean, you are someone who covers cricket, you know, in depth, and you've you know been on Indian podcasts, and you've even spoken Hindi during India versus Australia. Uh, so, where do you rate him if you follow the Indian cricket for the last good 10, 15 years? Uh, where do you rate him in the white ball format? Because Gautam Gambhir today tweeted saying he was the best white ball cricketer. Uh, I don't know if in the world, but definitely coming from India, and India also has had the likes of Virat Kohli and Sachin Tendulkar. Uh, so what do you make of those kind of comments? I know a lot of time there's a sentiment that's flowing. They were tight in, their, uh, in the days. They were part of the two World Cup winning teams. So they were good friends. Uh, but everyone is entitled to their opinion. Uh, where do you rate Yuvraj at his, at his very best in the white ball format? Uh, leave T20 out of it, but in the ODIs? Well, in my opinion, Virat Kohli is clearly the best Indian um, short-form batsman ever. And there's no doubt he's the best uh, one-day batsman in the history of the world as things stand at the moment. Um, and I'd also place Tendulkar um, significantly above Yuraj Singh, but he's certainly in that, in that next group of players who's, um, you know, but if I'm honest, who, who would I rather pick in my side, Yuvraj Singh versus, say, um, Varenda Sawag? I'm probably going to pick Sawag. Um, looking at his record, strike rate of 80, 87, 88, he's, he's a hard one to judge because he spanned the era where that sort of strike rate these days isn't so good. But when he started playing, that was a fantastic strike rate. So um, he's, he's a player who had some some great highs and some some big peaks. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I think that if you're picking India's best ever um, one-day side, he'd certainly come into, into, into strong consideration for one of the batting spots. But I don't think he'd be an absolute lock. Interesting. I mean, uh, I know this is uh, your expertise, but I'll drop in my 
uh, viewpoint as well, just as a counter-argument. I think Yuvraj is uh, definitely out there. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, as far as the Indian white ball batting batting crates. And uh, Sehwag would not be in my 11. Uh, I think uh, it'll be Gavaskar and maybe one of Sharma or uh, Shikhar Dhawan or maybe even Ganguly. And then I would have uh, Kohli and then I would have Yuvraj. So Yuvraj definitely, for me, above Sehwag. I know Sehwag has the great strike rate, but I still think Sehwag was a more devastating test player. I think he he had some real impacts on some of the test matches that he played for India, and like the with the likes of like Matthew Hayden, you know, one of his big rivals or counterpart. I think he changed games uh, more at the test arena by giving India flying starts. Uh, again, very decent ODI player, but I don't think he's in the same league as, in my opinion, as Yuvraj Singh. Uh, to be sure. Well, I'd certainly have Yuvraj ahead of Sunny. Uh, in one-day cricket, put it that way. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't give um, Sonny Gavaskar any consideration whatsoever for my um, best-ever Indian one-day No, 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 he, he wouldn't be there. I, I said Shikhar Dhawan and Rohit Sharma. Sonny Gavaskar, no. Sonny Gavaskar. Oh, I thought you said Gavaskar. Sorry, I thought you said Gavaskar. No, 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 I mean, no, I, oh, did I? Okay, I apologize. I, I thought it was <laughs> Tendulkar uh, and uh, Virat Kohli, yeah. Tendulkar open and then uh, with uh, either Sharma or Dhawan and then uh, number three Kohli and number four Yuvraj Singh, yeah. Or maybe I need coffee while I'm having this podcast if I did sing Avaskar. <laughs> so I've just as likely heard it wrong myself. Yeah. I, I need coffee as well. We've been um, mm. Last night was my first night, decent night's sleep in about 12 days. Thanks, thanks for the rain out. I, I managed to get some sleep last night. So absolutely. And let's go back to your point because a lot of my listening base is Austri- uh, Indians. And I'm sure the moment I put your name, a lot of Indians follow you on Twitter. So when you say Yuvraj Singh's retirement didn't really make any news or he- any head turns in Australia. So why is that? Because he didn't really have a... A good test career. That's why Australians don't view him as a force because he was part of two World Cups. I know T20 is another World Cup that uh, people our generation sometimes haven't warmed up to, but that's that's a format that's clearly here to stay. So, why is Yuvraj Singh not a big name, say, compared to Virendra Sehwag in Australia? Um, I, I think it's just that Australia, like every country, is focused on its, itself to a degree. Um, and Yuvraj, um, you know, you've also probably got a uh, not ever forget just how popular cricket is in India. I mean, cricket is a big sport in Australia, but it's not as big in Australia as it is in India. So Yuvraj Singh is not a name who cut through to the average sports fan in Australia. The average Australian sports fan in terms of Indian cricketers know Sachin Tendulkar and Virat Kohli for sure, um, and probably MS Dhoni. Um, maybe Harbhajan Singh because of the, uh, the notoriety. But if you walk down the street and said to someone, do you like sport? And that person said, yes, have you heard of Yuvraj Singh? I think the answer is more likely to be no than yes. So there's nothing, it's not as though they disrespect him, it's just that the nation, um, uh, cricket's a big sport, but there are other sports that are just as big, and um, Australia, like most countries, is um, inward-focused more than it should be. Okay, that's a fair point, and that's, I guess, uh, uh, is a good enough segue to talk about A.B. de Villiers and the saga that's around in South Africa. They have their hands full with the schedule, they played their third game, and India was playing their first uh, I don't know what's up with that kind of scheduling. You know, in a 10-team format, everybody should have played one game and then the second round should have been one game each. But anyway, so South Africa finds themselves, uh, after the rain delay, at pretty much brink of elimination. They can't put a step wrong. They were lucky enough. I mean, I know still it was early days to come out of this game against the West Indies with a split point. And then the whole uh, saga of uh, A.B. de Villiers has been chasing them for the last four or five days. So a couple of questions rolled into one. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you would say it was the right move not to include him. But uh, there's a part of you, does that feel that, you know, they really don't have a settled batting unit and sometimes uh, exception could have been made? Where do you sit on that? 
Yeah, it's a funny one. I think that as an overarching answer, I, I just find it strange that it ever got to this point. There must have been um, – obviously, de Villiers was not completely satisfied with the way things were going with, with South African cricket because the way that he played against Australia just recently in the Sandpaper Gate series, he's, you know, his form was, was magnificent. He was back playing for the national side. I think it was, it was at that point then that they needed to make sure that he was a part of this World Cup side. The fact that he then sort of uh, pulled out and then at the last moment um, wanted to go back in there, they've probably done the right thing in saying no, but, gee, the temptation must have been uh, to say yes. Kind of World Cups really put um, strain on one's, I suppose, principles and standards and, and, and the way that one goes about things. But I, if it was up to me and I was in charge of South African cricket, I'd have been very, very tempted to say, OK, uh, all is forgiven, come back, and um, but let's make sure we win the World Cup. Hmm. Yeah, I'll add something, because before I was preparing for the podcast, I read a couple of articles uh, on this very saga of A.B. de Villiers and Firdos Munda, I think, who covers South African cricket exclusively. She wrote about this piece, I think, four days on cric- ago on Crick Info, and she mentioned, I mean, this thing started seven years ago when there was an injury to Mark Poucher, and A.B. de Villiers was asked to put on the keeping gloves and the workload started then and they didn't treat it as well he was so talented he could have done both but then it was taking its toll and then the World Cup 2015 you know, semi-final loss the way the board treated the players and he took that loss the hardest so she said there were multiple layers to it he became a very indecisive player how he wanted but then there are also rumours that uh, he was given some sort of a behind the door confirmation where you know, even he could walk in to the World Cup side just before the announcement if he was interested. So there's like uh, a lot of uh, things thrown around, but I still think they could have handled it better if they were not going to include him. There was no need to, you know, break the story out. I don't know how this works because if AB is just making a phone call to Faf Duplessis or someone is making this news, uh, you know, to the selection committee as behind because I'm sure this was done without cameras and press conference so this is kind of the distraction they didn't need and this is definitely uh, you know not the post-retirement you know this is not not the post-retirement legacy feature you want to have is such a nice guy and such a talented cricketer but again I'm sure if the temptation is there they're all athletes at heart he probably you know misjudged this one badly if that's how he wanted it to be played out it's very sad that the way that South African cricket is currently at that I have to feel sorry for them that if they could field their very best side and you could bring in um, players like uh, Abbott and Mornay Morkel, uh, Avery de Villiers and others, that um, they would once again be uh, a leading contender. The last statistic I heard, I'm not sure if it's still true, was that there was something like 50 South African crickets playing um, permanently in English county cricket, having basically turned their back on South Africa. And there's a whole raft of reasons that that could occur. But, you know, in an ideal world, I would, I would like to see India, Australia and England find a way to say we want the very best players playing for South Africa, West Indies, New Zealand for as long as possible. Maybe we need to give a bit of financial incentive so that when we do play international cricket against these sides, they're as strong as possible so that we can all benefit. In the same way that in the English Premier League, Manchester United and Manchester City and others still give an enormous chunk of the television money to the, the clubs coming right down the bottom of the, the, the league table, uh, which, they, you know, it's not really in their own interest to do that in, from the short term, but from the long term, it keeps the league healthier as a whole. No, I think you're right. And, uh, and I don't think we live in a perfect world. And the scenario you're proposing is really, uh, I think, 
crucial for the health of the game and a healthy South Africa is really good for cricket and uh, the names you took uh, even I read Kyle Abbott is in England Morne Morkel is in England and these people and now Dale Stain is on, on his way back and yeah I mean we can do a you know, dedicated podcast on this because this is just sad how this World Cup is unraveling for them very quickly and today they were lucky enough to come out with a point because West Indies is one team that is really on everybody's radar after they you know, destroyed Pakistan in the opening game and played a close match against Australia. So let's talk about some of the big games that are coming this week. So let's start with Australia and Pakistan. And Pakistan is that mercurial side, you know. They started against West Indies, upset England. Then Sri Lanka was a big test, but they, it was washed out. They came away with split point. So what is the news surrounding in Australian papers and Australian media outlet for this clash against Pakistan, which could still have some rain involved, I think, it's going to rain in Bristol, but uh, I expect at least to have a 40-over game, at least for the BBC weather. I've been following it closely. Uh, well, from, a, from an Australian point of view, I think there's a feeling that there are the, the side is a very good side, but with two or three key weaknesses. And one of those key weaknesses is what's the situation with our all-rounder? Marcus Stoinis has been out of form with the bat and the ball, and it was emblematic in that game against India that he got a second ball duck and went for eight and a half, nine and over when he bowled. There's no replacement for him that's equivalent. So if we were to drop him, it's, it means a change in the in the structure of the side. Then there's pressure on Nathan Coulter-Nile, um, which you know emphasises that our opening pair of bowlers uh, are doing well. I know that um, Stark's performance, uh, Stark's figures weren't very good in, in the game against India, but by and large, pretty happy with our opening bowlers. But the third and fourth seamer are a real issue. And then um, the the batting. I, I think the, there's a feeling that the batting will come good, that the um, that the side can take advantage of the format, and that a few slow games and a few somewhat disappointing games early on in the in the tournament are okay as long as Australia do enough to make the semi-finals. That hopefully by then the batting will um, will have clicked into gear, and it's showing some positive signs with Steve Smith and Alex Carey. Uh, can we see Nathan Lyon uh, incorporated in the lineup at any point, or is too soon to hit the panic button on Zampa? I think Nathan Lyon can, will definitely come into consideration and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of Adam Zampa. Australia hasn't tended to play two spinners outside the subcontinent, but if pitches are going to spin, especially if the beatbox are not doing the job, they may have no choice. And uh, let's shed some light on Mitchell Stark. I mean, this is a guy who's been struggling in test matches against quality teams and now he was one of the better ODI bowlers. Uh, we don't see you know, the same zest. I know still early days in the World Cup. Are you any, uh, do you have any concerns in this attack that's led by Cummins and Stark with Stark's role? Uh, if Australia has to win the World Cup, bowlers have to make key stops in this game that's, you know, heavily dominated by batsmen. So are, what are your impressions on Mitchell Stark's World Cup so far? To be honest, I, I'm not too bothered. Um, I, I was a little bit worried going into it that he might, he's the type of bowler that on his day is a match winner, but when he doesn't perform well, he, he can really get absolutely hammered. Um, the fact that he, he bowled very uh, successfully against the West Indies, took five for 46 off his 10 overs, and I thought that for much of the time against uh, India, he bowled pretty well as well there. Uh, and I think you've just got to say that the Indian side are a very powerful side. They got themselves in, they got a platform with wickets in hand, and then were able to have a real free reign to attack. And sure, Stark did get some did get some hammering, but that's the lot of all fast bowlers uh, in this day and age. So I'm not all that bothered by Stark. I still think that um, he's um, an asset for Australia. Okay. 
And uh, last question on Usman Khwaja. I mean, he was a guy who was in the absence of Smith and Warner. He delivered that role that he was the consistent guy, you know, doing going out there and putting on scores and, you know, leading uh, the top order. Now, do you think he finds himself in uh, no man's land or he, he knew that once Smith and Warner are back, uh, you know, this is what his role is going to be? He's still one of the three or four best batsmen. Uh, how, how key is his form if Australia has to make a deep run here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think he would prefer to open the batting and maybe, um, you know, no one's ever talked about should Finch and Kawaja open the batting together. But if Warner keeps on playing the way he does, then maybe that could be a consideration. Look, he, he looked ugly in getting out against the West Indies, but that was just one one shot. I think that he backed away because he thought he was going to get a short ball that he could smash through covers for four. It didn't turn out that way. He got out caught. As soon as you're out backing away, people start talking. But I think that's not an issue. Uh, I think he played reasonably well against India. He got 42 from 39. He came out when when the conditions were quite difficult. And, um, you know, Steve Smith and he batted very similarly, both scoring about the same rate um, during the same period. So if he's going to have to bat in the middle order, then I still think he's a better option for Australia than Sean Marsh. Okay, so let's focus on the big game coming up against Pakistan. And uh, this is a very mercurial side. What's your opinion of Sarfraz Ahmed and his team? Uh, how do they match up against Australia? I know back earlier in the year, Australia swept them in ODI series, but uh, England also swept them, but World Cup is a different tournament. So what's your preview of this match that's coming up from Pakistan's point yeah, of view? I think, yeah, I, I think that um, the, the five-match series that Australia played against Pakistan in the UAE, you can largely discount, not only because it didn't really matter, but also they rested about six or seven of their of their best players. Um the, the, the concern for Pakistan going forward for me is that, that there's going to be fresh pitches in the semi-final and the final. And that probably is a little bit of their advantage nullified to a degree. So if they do make it through, then I, I think they're not going to be quite as effective as they were back in the um, back in the Champions Trophy. Um, so um, I, I think that I think Australia should be too good for them. I, I really do. And I was very surprised that they beat England. Um, and I don't know. I, I, before the tournament, a few months back, I had a higher opinion of Pakistan. Now, I'm Okay. Over the course of the tournament. Yeah, you're fading out again. So let me ask you another question then. Uh, the other big game this week is India and New Zealand. Everybody's talking about West Indies as the fourth team, while New Zealand is, uh, you know, quietly. Of course, they haven't played a top team yet, but they are still... I think, leading, leading the table. So where does New Zealand fall in, in the power ranking? The World Cup's like two and a half weeks old. Uh, perennial, you know, semi-final, quarter-final contender. Uh, you think Williamson and his uh, men, there's a solid pick, or you think they just lack the firepower of a West Indies or a mercurial ability of a Pakistan? Yeah, I think that they are at a level below the, the very top teams. And, you know, they're six, from, they're six points from six at the moment, so that's fantastic. Um, I, I just think that their bowling is not as good as it was in 2015. I think that Trent Bolt is still a very good bowler, but I don't think he's quite the superstar that he was in, in, in 2015. I think that Lockie Ferguson is um, a very good bowler, but against the very best opposition, I could see him being um, you know, taken to the cleaners. The same as, I mean, Tim Southey hasn't really figured um, in the tournament yet, but I, I thought that he was a bit disappointing in the IPL. I think that he's a player that... Uh, oppositions would look to target. So I think that, um, and then when you look at their batting, 
Uh, Munro doesn't seem to be quite in the same form as he as he once was, um, and they yeah they probably just lack one or two um, one or two of those players who combine power hitting with absolutely um, you know pro- proven class as a as a batter as, as a batter as well. That so I, in my opinion, New Zealand um, won't make the semi-finals, but um, you know it's, it's the nature of the tournament that uh, they only need one or two more good results and they will make. Hmm. And uh, this Indian batting lineup, do you see uh, India struggle against New Zealand? Because I know in the warm-up games, I think they had, like, of course, warm-up games can be written off. But India, after Austra- the Australian win is riding high, all big three have fired. Sharma and Dhawan have hundreds. Kohli is always good and, you know, came pretty close to 100 himself against Australia. So uh, how do you fancy that matchup? I mean, is India a huge favourite or there's uh, something like Trent Bolt can do with the in the opening spell and that can, you know, unsettle the top? I think India go into the match as massive favourites and the only way I can see um, New Zealand winning would be if India did that first on a pitch that was doing a lot and really struggled and then that it flattened out throughout the rest of the day. Because if the pitch is going to be difficult for the entire day, then whatever difficulty the Indian bowler, the Indian batsmen face from the New Zealand bowlers, I think that Bumrah will give it back to the New Zealanders with interest. So... Um, I, I think that India really should give New Zealand an absolute thrashing, to be quite honest. Hmm. And let's talk about KL Rahul. India has, you know, so far passed both tough oppositions. Even the South Africa is a depleted team, but still it's a big name. You always expect them, you know, with the batting, at least the bowling uh, pace battery. And then Australia was, you know, in many people's list, the second best team. And now India is clearly the second best team. It'll change every week. So KL Rahul is a guy who's batting at four and against maybe England, West Indies as a tournament, you know, fully gets into, uh, you know, at the business end. You think he's someone who needs to come good at some point because Kohli and Shastri are totally showing the faith in him. If the big three are firing and Pandya is uh, doing his cameos and Dhoni is there, so all six don't have to fire. But what's your uh, take on KL Rahul's place in this in this lineup? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of Australians are probably surprised that Rishabh Pant um, wasn't picked up the squad. Um, Rahul looked very good in the balls he faced against Australia. So he's, he's obviously a very good player, but he's not the sort of player that inspires much fear in the rest of the team. But you say at the moment he's in favour and he'd have to, um, have to be done. Okay. All right, so that brings us to the last conversation of this podcast, uh, England and West Indies. Uh, England, you know, have lost to Pakistan, but clearly still look like the deepest batting lineup here, and the Jofra Archer and the you know the bowling attack, and you know they're just loaded at options. So, how does that match? It's a it's a it's a fi- it's a fiery clash. West Indies has a lot of firepower of their own. Uh, they won a Test series against uh, England not too long ago, but this is the white ball cricket where England have really transformed them into, you know, the really the class of the game after their, uh, you know ugly exit at the 2015 World Cup at the hands of Bangladesh and since then you know uh, the transformation is history so how do you see that matchup coming and is England still the cream of the crop for you? Yeah I think England are still my favourite narrowly over India West Indies are the hardest team in the World Cup to line up uh, in the sense that England are a much more polished side than them England feel better than them Uh, West Indies still have a tendency to self-destruct a little bit taking wickets off no balls, the sort of thing that I could expect them to do or, um, you know, dropping key catches. 
But they're closing the gap on that. I mean, Sheldon Cottrell's catch is one that I didn't expect to see taken. So my expectation of this game is that England are ultimately a classier side than the West Indies, but that gap has lowered significantly. And I think that if England or any side had their way, their preferred opposition in the semifinals are not the West Indies. They're not a team you want to get in a one-off knockout game because the power hitters that the West Indies lineup has, uh, as everyone has said ad infinitum, are extraordinary. And I I think this match, my advice to anyone who happens to be going to it is that if you're going to to this game, you need to be watching every ball because it's genuinely a dangerous position to be in. There might well be something like 36ers hit. If Andre Russell is fit and hits a flat six, um, you want to be keeping your eyes open because that can be genuinely dangerous. It sounds like I'm being flippant, but I actually am fearful for someone in the crowd's safety in these sorts of matches when the England batting lineup has loads of power hitters and some of the West Indian uh, batting is you know, vastly more powerful than, say, Viv Richards. It's 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 almost taking the sport to a, a level that it's never been at before. Some of the things that Andre Russell did in the IPL where, you know, you could be chasing impossible targets off three or four overs and, and you know, he, he gets the runs or goes very close to getting them. It's, a, it's, it's something new that I've never seen before. And in many ways, this could be the most exciting match of the tournament. Yeah, it's funny, and they, they have quite a few hitters. I mean, Chris Kale's name has not even been spoken at this World Cup. Of course, he's you know more in the twilight, but he still has the ability you know to deliver those big hits. Uh, so going back to the English side, I mean, Josh Butler, and uh, you know that's again a very unusual position where he comes in. That just shows the depth of the English batting, and he can wreak havoc. So is he also one of those guys who, few years from now, we look back and say, you know, they redefine the ODI batting and took it to a whole new level? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's got the, what I was talking about before, the combination of the power hitting, but, uh, you know, a genuine ability to play as well. That looking back, one of the great players of yesteryear, Michael Bevan, who seemed to always manage to get the runs required for Australia to win, but he wasn't someone who would regularly clear the fence. Um, Butler and Morgan and Bairstow, um, uh, all seem to combine that that ability to just uh, get the runs, but but with power hitting that uh, as an add-on that didn't happen in the past. So um, I, I think Owen Morgan is the one for me as well. That of all the batsmen in the England side, if I had to pick one player that if I was on the opposition that I could guarantee wouldn't get any runs, it's him. And I find that when England are thirty for three and struggling, his ability to say, "Well, I'm still going to attack," and then attack successfully. Is, is unique and remarkable coming from the leader of the side who must be under a lot of pressure. I think it's a brilliant point you made because, uh, uh, not because I just agree with you and I think yeah, it gets understated because Root's consistent and uh, Butler and uh, Bairstow, you know, have been doing the thing but it, I think it was his wicket then when Shadab Khan got him out in the Pakistan game. Uh, I kind of thought, you know, this chase is going to be a lot steeper now and that's what happened. Of course, Butler's uh, brilliance, you know, made it into a very competitive game, but I think it was Morgan's wicket, in my view, that turned that game. I agree. Interesting. Um, that game and the Australian game are the second and fourth biggest second innings totals in the history of the World Cup, both in losing uh, matches in an era where scoring 300 plus in the second innings no longer seems so significant. But I think both sides get a fair bit out of it. I think the bounce is back from in Australia as well. Um, and will win the World Cup, Australia win the World Cup, we may look at the loss against England, loss against Pakistan, loss against India, just to say uh, their batting line in that game really sort of uh, mm. 
Uh, and does Moinelli uh, come back if you were picking the team against West Indies? Or do you think you will play the same team? It's a difficult one. Um, Moen Ali looked so good in the IPL and just hasn't looked quite so good now. Uh, I think um, I would be inclined to pick him, yes, and I'd be inclined to take him two spinners against the West Indies because I think that's a better option against the, uh, the West Indies side. Uh, whether he's a fixed in the rest of the tournament, I think it's going to depend on Okay, so lastly, are you picking England or West Indies? Is it an upset or England sweeps sweeps home? Um, you know, if I was putting my house on it, I'm saying England. Um, if I'm, uh, you know, if I had to put actual money on it, I'd look at the odds. And if if the West Indies were being offered at any sort of generous odds, then I'd um, I, I'd be I'd be tempted to take them. But to be honest, I was more confident about the West Indies beating uh, South Africa last night. Obviously, given that they were. Um, a, a much bigger chance but this England side just sort of gives me a sense of uh, certainty and, and confidence and that their their loss against Pakistan I do think is an aberration um, it was an aberration that occurred two years ago as well um, but maybe because I'm an Australian I, I want Australia to do well and England are the old enemy maybe I sort of project onto England a, talent, a skill level that they don't have I just think that they will be too classy for the West Indies in the end but hopefully the West Indies can uh, make it exciting as they did against Australia Hi, Paul. I think that's Hi. some wonderful insight, and we plan to bring you back. This is still, you know, early days of the World Cup, six more, seven more weeks remaining. Uh, once again, thanks for your time, and let's talk soon. Thanks, Sakib.